The following is a special series of the Darden Ideas to Action podcast, focusing on the power of disruptive innovations. The Disruption, a lively discussion between UVA Darden School of Business professors Yael grushka Kukane and Mike Lennox on cutting-edge technologies and practices that are challenging the status quo. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Yael and welcome to a Good Disruption. Hey Mike, how are hey, you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Excited about tonight's topic. Oh, tell yeah. us more. What is I know that you're very passionate about it. I'm excited to see you this passionate about it. What are we talking about? Well, today? really our researcher Becky is the most passionate about this. But the topic is <laughs> clean meat, okay. which is a reference to lab-grown beef or oh. other types of meats. And if that sounds I don't know, science fiction. Uh, I'm here to tell you that this is becoming more and more of a reality. But before we jump in, I want to talk about something completely unrelated, which is continuing my, my you know, push to how we can popularize our podcast. Okay, good. What's your latest idea? So Get my, the cows to hum it in the field? Oh, I like that. That actually wasn't where I was going. But I you know, was thinking about how I, I made a reference to uh, Jason Bateman being my, my doppelganger in a previous session, and it made me thinking about doppelgangers in a podcast world. Hmm. So I'm thinking, obviously, you don't need a video doppelganger. You need an audio doppelganger. So who could be our audio doppelgangers that we could then like post on our website and have you know Instagram feeds about and so I've got a good one for you and I'm I'm curious your thoughts for me the one I have for you is in some ways way too obvious and reflects my complete lack of knowledge of Israeli like (laughs) celebrities okay so I'm going with Gal Gadot oh that's good I'll take that as a compliment got the Israeli accent it really you know that works so I don't know where in the world you'd go for me Ooh, on, yeah, the, that is a hard on my one. audio doppelganger? I'm going to have to work on that. You're going to have to yeah, think about I'm that gonna one? I'm going to have to think about that one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Not good. like James Earl Jones or yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, my voice isn't that good. <laughs> uh, the like, Rock would be cool. The I mean, Rock? Yeah. He is. He shows up in, in Charlottesville from time to time. You he know? does. He, he does house. have a house here. Yeah. So yeah. maybe but we can work on ha- that. He doesn't have the same accent. All right. So. Well, we're going to get Mark Wahlberg in here and we're going to get The Rock in here on our podcast. Okay. I love it. But I digress. I digress. Should we so talk tell, about clean meat? Yeah, tell me about clean meat. Why, what is it that fascinates Becky so much? Yeah, so this gets into some of the work we've done together on decarbonization. Uh, we have a book, just to self-promote here, on the decarbonization imperative we published together. And so when we started looking at our decarbonization challenge, we broke it down by sectors. So there's things like transportation and electric, uh, electrical generation, energy generation. But one of the largest Uh, contributors to greenhouse gases that I think is not appreciated is agriculture. It's actually about a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. And two thirds of that comes from livestock. So you may have heard about, you know, cows farting and belching. Uh, It actually is a significant contributor to greenhouse gases. Uh, It's actually two things. Uh, It's intrinsic fermentation, which is reference to belching of cows and the ways their stomachs work, and then also manure, so manure management. And in both cases, they release methane, uh, which goes up and is a significant uh, greenhouse gas, actually more significant than than, uh, CO2 in terms of its impact. My daughter will get a kick out of the fact that our podcast is talking about poo and farts. Yes. Exactly. We've, we've digressed to okay. that, to that okay, point great. there. So uh, the question becomes, given how 
much livestock is consumed uh, in, in, our, in our world, in our society, what can we do? So there's a lot of interesting solutions working directly with the cows. Uh, genetic breeding to try to get them to have less uh, belching. Uh, there is the idea of probiotics, um, the use of seaweed as a feed, all of these to try to reduce the amount that they make. But that's still not clean meat. Still not clean meat. And in fact, you know, the more obvious uh, solution would be substitution. So maybe people would just stop consuming meat. That might seem a little unrealistic, given at least, you know, Americans' taste, but other parts of the world as well. Uh, we have seen, of course, veggie burgers uh, and, and the like. Uh, they were introduced all the way back in the 1980s. But now we've seen the growth of companies like Impossible Burger uh, and Beyond Meat, uh, who've really made some great traction in creating products that really mimic beef, you know, uh, products here. And so you see that at, whether it be at uh, um, uh, Burger King with an impossible Whopper and the like, uh, and that's really grown. The other big area we've seen is alternative dairy. So in the United States now, we're up to 15%, over 15% of milk consumption is alternative dairy. So oak milk and almond milk uh, and the like here. But these are only substitutes so far. Uh, and there are those who still, you know, love a good you know, steak, steak or yeah. uh, burger? Are you? Are you I one of those? I am definitely one of those. Yeah, yeah. my yeah. Uh, my wife is actually vegan, uh, so I say I'm vegan adjacent. Um, but I, even knowing the impacts that livestock and beef have, still like to consume you know a burger and a steak on occasion. So this is where clean meat comes in. So this is the idea of using lab-grown meat. So it's the same cellular constituency of what a livestock would be grown in the laboratory, grown in a production facility, so it doesn't have those methane emissions, doesn't have the, as we're saying, pooping and, uh, <laughs> and belching uh, parts of the, uh, of the equation. Uh, and again, this is, this is real. There's lots of money coming into it, and, it, and it's growing uh, you know, every year here. Uh, so it's exciting and yet freaky at the same time. Yeah. Thinking about eating something that is coming from a lab seems to me, just so much less preferred than getting something from nature. So, you know, like humans, uh, you know, the cows need to function in certain ways and all of those bodily functions are intended for certain purposes. Yeah. Um, how is it that we would get away with it or how is it that it would possibly be good for us as humans to grow things in the lab in this artificial way? Well, again, you know, from at least an environmental standpoint, we're, you know, removing those greenhouse gases. There's also hopes for just kind of efficiency. Think about land use, um, the amount of land and the amount of land used to grow feedstocks for cattle and cows uh, that would be reduced. Uh, you can have a, arguably a much more efficient um, energy-wise and otherwise uh, uh, facility uh, with this. Why not move to different kind of animals? So for instance, either eat, consume different meats, so develop yeah. different habits. There's a lot of other animals. I've, uh, you know, I visited Sweden earlier in the year and the meatballs there are made out of bear, are made out of uh, deer, are made out <laughs> of uh, many different uh, animals. Uh, maybe that's an alternative. And in a similar vein, I know that there's a lot of efforts around um, insects and grasshoppers yeah. and, and, and getting protein from alternative sources like that, that seems uh, still natural and not lab created. So why not go that route? Yeah. And I think the, the premise here is we love our burgers, we love our steaks, and it's very hard to get us off of that. And in fact, one of the things we have seen throughout societies around the world is that as they become more economically developed and they have a higher uh, income levels, um, 
people do tend to want to have a more protein-rich diet, and that often means more consumption of meat, uh, uh, you know, pork, uh, beef, um, chicken, and the like. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. Like, the easy solution would be just substitute away. The reality is there's a huge demand for this, and so this is an alternative approach. Let me put some numbers on this. So uh, we really haven't been that long that we've been trying to develop this technology. So in 2013, a Dutch scientist, uh, Mark Post, came up with the first burger, if you will, that was a lab-grown burger. To, to put it in perspective, and this is a great, I think, story of how technology works, the cost estimate of that first burger, $330,000. Wow. So that was an expensive very expensive. What kind of things did he spend that money on? I think there was a lot of, you know, getting the technology right, you know, mm -hmm. and the like was, was very expensive. But here's where we are now. There are 107 entrants into this marketplace, 107 okay. startups in this space. Uh, they span 25 different countries. So this is not just a U.S. thing. Uh, you know, Israel is also it's a big, big, big yeah. in there and, and other countries as well. Uh, there's been over $1.3 billion invested in this space just in 2021, just in the last year. Uh, and there are big, you know, ag tech companies like Tyson Foods and ADM who are getting into this and investing in it heavily. Um, and the good news is that we're down now from 330000 to roughly $10 per burger. Good um, or bad, depends on how you see it. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, yeah. and that's still expensive. I mean, I think you know, your average McDonald's burger on a cost standpoint is going to be far, far less than that. Um, but again, you're seeing a lot of interest and action uh, of making this real. And uh, again, we're starting to see some large-scale production facilities built. Uh, one of the first was built in Israel uh, by uh, Futures Meat Technologies. There's one by California-based um, uh, company that's going to open its facility in the U.S. in 2024. Um, there's still challenges on scaling production. Access to cell lines is actually a, a big one. Um, there's regulation to worry about here. Uh, the only country uh, slash city that has approved the sale of, of lab-grown meat is Singapore. So you can go to Singapore and get your lab-grown burger at, at this point. At the supermarket? I don't know sure if it's at the supermarket <laughs> or like a high-end uh, restaurant there. But I think, you know, the heart of your question gets to probably the biggest challenge, which is this customer acceptance piece. So let me ask you, the, you know, straight up, would you, would you eat one? If we could get, get one secured here, would you I'm eat one? I'm not actually that sure. I, I'm not a big fan of veggie burgers either. I like my meat, as you described. Yeah. Um, I like, uh, you know, the authentic feel of it. Maybe I would have to taste it first to decide and kind of get a sense for really how close it is and just convince myself that it is the same thing. So it's the, it's the taste then that's going to drive it's it? It's the taste. Maybe it's something about the process. Um, it's a good question. I would be very skeptical. Um, but maybe it's partly because I'm unaware. So like, yeah. so can you describe a little bit more of the process? Like how do these beef burgers get created? How does this meat get created? And well, now you're, now you're getting way beyond my technical expertise here. I, I envision some, you know, you know, clean room lab with people <laughs> with walking around with little yes, exactly. petri dishes yes, and, yes. Uh, uh, and I don't know, magic happens and, uh, out comes, uh, out comes the meat. Actually there as often as the case with technology, uh, science fiction um, portrayals of, of these things. So if you're a fan of the uh, show Westworld, yeah. I forget, like season three or whatever, <laughs> they actually had a portrayal of a plant that was a lab-grown meat um, 
facility. So you do see some of those. But what I'd like to do is actually bring in uh, a guest expert for us today, uh, who I hope and I imagine will have far, I know will have far more knowledge about this than I. So uh, Elliot Schwartz is a PhD and lead scientist for cultivated meat at the Good Food Institute. Uh, the Good Food Institute is a nonprofit dedicated to advancing foundational open access research on alternative proteins. So clean meats, but others as well. And they're really trying to build the kind of innovation ecosystem uh, to push on, uh, push forward these nascent technologies. So Elliot, uh, thank you for uh, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Elliot, let, let's start with, with Yael's question to me that I don't have a good answer to. What, what exactly does this look like when you have a lab-grown meat um, uh, production facility? As you explained, like, you know, lab-grown or what our preferred term is cultivated meat or cultured meat, you know, the exact nomenclature is still being worked out, is indeed genuine animal meat that comes directly by cultivating animal cells rather than growing an entire animal itself. So the process generally begins by taking a small biopsy from a living animal or an animal that was recently slaughtered where those cells can actually be viable and taken back to the lab. You can select for the type of cell that you want. So for instance, if you're making fat, you might take a fat biopsy or if you're making muscle, uh, and meat, you'd, you'd take a, a muscle biopsy. Those cells can be selected for their ability to grow in certain conditions, uh, typically in a medium that is composed of the things that cells need to survive, sugars, amino acids, vitamins, etc. And those cells are grown in a consecutive scale-up process in what's called a bioreactor or more colloquially known as a cultivator. So think similar to a uh, brewery uh, in a stainless steel vessel. That's generally the sort of format or vision that these companies are going for. And those cells will be cultured at large scale. So you grow a lot of them in these vessels and then eventually differentiate or transfer those cells into the principal components of meat. So muscle, fat, connective tissue that can form a variety of final products. So that's the general process, uh, but happy to dive into any of those aspects a little deeper. I, I'm curious about your metaphor here for like a brewery, because again, I went into it thinking more of like a you know a clean room that you might see in a semiconductor plant. Um, and to your point about I shouldn't be using lab, but you know cultivated meat here is is the, is the brewery a better a better analogy of what these facilities will feel like when you're walking through them? Yeah, that's correct. So I think you know. At the end of the day, this is food production, um, and we, we haven't necessarily grown animal cells in a fully food production environment, um, but we do fermentation like beer production or recombinant protein production for food and medicine in these sorts of environments. Um, and so the, the vision there is really to make it look like and look and feel like a brewery. And in fact, some of the companies that you mentioned that have some of these uh, pilot scale facilities opening in the Bay Area, they actually have windows in their facilities so that you can actually peer through the window and see how your meat is made. And I think a lot of companies really you know, put a lot of emphasis on that transparency compared to conventional meat production as a way to win over the, the consumer to have them really up close uh, to the, the production itself. 
So, uh, so thank you, Elliot, for, for sharing your knowledge. This is fascinating stuff. And, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, so David Attenborough and all his uh, shows on TV, the nature shows. Are you familiar with those? Absolutely, yes. So, you know, he's, he's a, a brilliant uh, uh, presenter. And, like, what would his take be? Does this mess around with our natural, you know, evolutionary perspective on, on, on the world around us and the, the food chain and the biology? How does this maybe shift things or create some imbalances around us? Well, I, I think I would argue on the contrary that actually our conventional way of meat production has resulted in a lot of, environmental imbalances. Um, as Mike alluded to, meat production continues to rise as countries uh, increase their, their GDP. So much so that you know it's predicted that by the year 2050, there could be 70 to 100% more global meat demand. Yet, you know it's already taken a, a toll on the environment in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, in terms of deforestation and land use, in terms of air and water pollution etc. So I, the way that I sort of think about it, and some people actually refer to it as the fourth industrial or the fourth agricultural revolution. So, yeah, you know, we ag domestic agriculture 4.0, right? The, the, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we domesticated animals 10,000 years ago or so. And, you know, this is just a new way now that we have these sort of technologies to grow animal cells in this way, converging a new way to create meat that hopefully will allow us to, you know, sort of decouple uh, the environmental impact and the resource demand from from meat production. And what about um, the the cost? You mentioned, as both of you have mentioned a few times, that as GDP goes up, so as does the consumption of meat. But are these solutions going to be accessible to everybody in an equal way? One of the reasons in the U.S. that you know we all you know, love our burger is that it's gotten so cheap and so easy to, 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 to get in the hands of everybody who needs it. How about the, the clean meat or the cultivated meat? Will it be accessible to everybody? Just before you answer that, Elliot, I, you know, um, my understanding of meat consumption in the U.S. has also increased you know, greatly where it used to be, you know, that special treat that you would have maybe one day a week. And now it's become, you know, part of people's everyday diet in some cases. So that, that's a great point. But Elliot, I'd you know, love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's correct. So per, per capita meat consumption, even the, in the U.S., continues to rise. And, you know, that's mostly due to chicken demand, even though beef um, and other meat forms have sort of remained stable. Um, but on the cost aspect, um, I think I'll, I'll just back up and sort of frame the entire sort of alternative proteins category for your audience and how we sort of break these down on a different techno technologies. So the Good Food Institute, we focus on alternative proteins as a whole, and there's really three big categories within that. The first, as you mentioned, are these plant-based protein products, so like Impossible and Beyond Meat that really aim to biomimic meat uh, using plant-based ingredients. The second category is fermentation-derived food products, and that could be either using microbes as factories to produce high-value protein ingredients like casein or whey or mm -hmm. heme protein, which is the ingredient in Impossible Burger, um, or it can also be used to create actually whole biomass from different microbes or fungi that can be used as ingredients or as whole meat substitutes, uh, substitute products. And then finally, the third category is the cultivated meat category. So growing actual animal cells into meat products. 
And so, you know, these exist on different uh, sort of trends in terms of technological development and readiness. With plant-based meat products, they're obviously already here on the market. Fermentation is a technology that is mature in other industries, but is just being sort of applied to the food industry uh, and moving down that cost curve. And then cultivated meat is, is sort of newer. And so it comes at a higher cost. And, and that cost is still indeed quite high. So Mike, you mentioned, I think a $10 burger, you know, some of these price points have been quoted in different news and media articles, but it's really actually hard at this point to pin down the exact cost of production. Um, and a reason for that is that it's still very early in development. It's a very nascent industry. These sorts of pilot scale facilities are really still the test beds for enabling the scale up of the technology. Now, with that said, I think in the short term, you know, these products that become commercialized, there'll be more and more sort of hybrid products. So just like the electric car, you know, you started with a hybrid vehicle because it was going to be uh, cheaper and more affordable to consumers. It's the same thing with these food products where you can actually dilute the cost of a cultivated meat product with plant-based ingredients. Hmm. So for instance, you know, using 5% of cultivated animal fat in an otherwise plant-based product that will hopefully give it that sort of taste and that flavor for, uh, of an animal product, um, but using just a fraction of the cells to, to dilute the cost. And so more and more, we think that these technologies will blend together um, and that can go a long way to making these more cost-effective and affordable to a broader range of consumers. That, that reminds me, growing up, my mom was able to take a little bit of beef and then you add the hamburger helper to like make it actually feed a whole family, which I think was kind of the similar concept for what you're saying here. Um, exactly. What about these alternative form, um, sources of protein? I mean, I, I, I brought up the grasshoppers, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's a, like a company out of Israel that I that spoke to our students the other day around uh, generating enough, pro you know, a little bit of uh, protein from grasshoppers is enough to kind of fuel people for like a day. I think it's like the protein per acre is yes. like huge, much, much greater magnitude than what you could grow. Yeah, um, what you get from like chicken and stuff. Yeah. What is your, what is the, how does that fit in the equation here, um, Elliot? Yeah, so I mean, uh, we at GFI, we don't focus on insect-derived uh food products as, as real alternatives. Obviously there are companies um, working on that, but we think, you know, on, from a consumer perspective, we think the easiest way is to replicate meat from plants or to grow meat directly from cells. And that if you can do that in a way that enables those products to compete on price and on taste and on convenience, um, then you're going to have a winning scenario where consumers don't have to make significant behavioral changes. Um, they can really swap in a product one for one. And I think the appeal of insects or consuming insects, especially in you know westernized uh, countries, um, just seems less uh, attractive, I guess, at this stage. I, I'm curious about the learning curve here. You mentioned, and that's a common theme in our podcast here. Um, when we talked about electric vehicles a few podcasts ago, uh, I, I made this point that electric vehicles are simple machines. You know, they're basically a battery stack and a, an electric motor. They don't have all the systems that need to go into an internal combustion engine, which gives me hope that as we drive down the cost of batteries, that electric vehicles will be, in fact, cheaper than internal combustion engines. 
Is there a similar argument here with cultivated meat? And what's in the back of my mind is like the value chain to to have livestock, the amount of land it takes again, the infrastructure, the, the, infrastructure, the food that has to go, the, you know, taking and, and culling the herds and processing it. I mean, like it, it is a vast infrastructure. Does this have the opportunity to be actually much cheaper once we get down the learning curve? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an open question. Um, for debate, I mean, it, it's true that from a you know thermodynamics perspective and efficiency perspective, you know, feeding, uh, growing plants to feed to animals to then eat the animal is highly inefficient, um, and we can take those same plants and either you know eat them directly or we can feed them to cells, which will just be uh, slightly uh, less efficient than eating the plants themselves. So just to give you a sense of of what those numbers shake out to be. If you take a chicken, it takes, you know, nine calories or so of, of food to get one calorie out. Um, and with cell or cultivated meat, it's thought that that ratio is more three to one or four to one. Um, so you think that it would, you know, from that perspective, it could be uh, more cost effective in the long term. But the challenge is really that, you know, you're going to need a lot of new infrastructure um, to enable this this technology to scale up. And the the main sort of driver, the bioreactor itself, is a, a large expensive piece of equipment um, that has a high capital cost. And so I think, you know, as this moves forward and more and more bioreactors need to be created, uh, we can potentially create more efficient fit for purpose bioreactors for use in the cultivated meat field. But also learning curves might be established in the manufacturing of these bioreactors mm. themselves, similar to, you know, how we can get better at manufacturing batteries um, and other aspects of like sort of core components of, of a value chain of a technology. So I think there's definitely opportunities there, but it's hard at this point to say, especially given, you know, how conventional meat is subsidized in, in various different ways, whether or not could, uh, cultivated meat um, could really undercut the costs in in a short or medium term. You mentioned the the capital cost of the equipment of the bioreactors. Like, I'm curious, what are the operational costs? Is this, is it water and, and energy, or what what's needed to to make these bioreactors work? Yeah, so it is more energy intensive than conventional meat. I, you know, to give your audience a sense of sort of the greenhouse gas breakdown, you you mentioned at the top that. You know, a lot of animal agriculture's emissions are actually nitrous oxide and uh, ammonia-related emissions rather than CO2 or carbon emissions. Generally, CO2 emissions in, in a conventional meat value chain are maybe 10 to 20 percent of the total cumulative greenhouse gas emissions. But that ratio is actually flipped on its head for uh, cultivated meat, where the vast majority of the emissions are the energy use at the facility itself. So it's more energy intensive, but the positive thing is that you can actually, you know, use renewable energy to create this. And so you can hopefully decouple the uh, sort of emissions from the actual process by, quote unquote, electrifying meat production. Yeah, I'm, I'm but, so, so just one, one more thing to mention in terms of like the main uh, OPEX expenditure there for production is really the, the feedstock itself. So the, the raw materials that those cells consume, um, amino acids uh, primarily are going to be a cost driver in the long term. 
I'm glad you mentioned the decarbonization of the electrical generation. I, you know, it always bothers me when people are like, well, your electric vehicle is using, you know, natural gas powered fire plants. The answer is yes, but we kind of know that to be able to decarbonize, we're going to need to electrify uh, quite a bit. So it makes sense to me that heavy electrical use, but we could decarbonize with renewables. Uh, I have a, a couple of really um, maybe different questions or taking us in a slightly different direction. Um, one is, tell me, is the FDA involved in the process in a similar way? Like, I think that people like to know that somebody's approving and uh, checking in on the quality of the food that they consume. Um, sometimes we, we care about that more than in others. I can imagine in an emerging field like this, uh, all eyes would be on, uh, you know, the approval and the regulators. What, what role do they play? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And um, so the, the way that the regulatory uh, sort of landscape works in the United States is that the FDA will oversee the process from essentially the harvesting of the cells or the biopsy of the cells from the original animal all the way up until that cell is created into essentially a meat product. So when it's sort of harvested from the bioreactor itself, at which point the USDA will then take over the oversight because it it sort of regulates the meat products themselves. So it's a joint regulatory framework. And indeed, there is a lot of scrutiny um, into how these products are, are going to be regulated. Um, there are several companies right now in the United States that have sort of submitted their safety dossiers, which contain you know, the evidence and justification for why their products they believe are safe to market to consumers. And that is being evaluated you know, I think as we speak um, by FDA and USDA regulators. So um, certainly, you know, there are new things about this, um, but at the end of the day, you are just creating meat. Um, and so there's a lot of existing sort of knowledge and frameworks from the food system that can be sort of applied to cultivated meat regulation to ensure its safety, um, but just in a different way. And, um, and so thank you so much. That, that is so helpful to know. And I think it's reassuring uh, for many listeners to understand that whatever happens at the end of the day, this will, you know, uh, pick up and become more popularized as the regulators are on board as well. What about the ethical questions? Like, if we can do this for meat and for cows, like, where do we end? Like, uh, I mean, I assume... You've already that, mentioned bear. Uh, well, bear I'm sure that we can do it for other animals, <laughs> but like, you know, okay, so now we're going to move on to a very controversial field related to people and individuals and humans, right? How does the ethics uh, come into play and what kind of pushback do you guys hear um, uh, out there? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the Soylent Green, you know, eating, <laughs> eating human meat... <laughs> Uh, is, is certainly a fun thing to, to entertain uh, from the technology. But of course, I don't think any regulatory agency would, would really approve that, nor company really pursue that as, as a route rather than just a, a thought exercise. But, you know, otherwise, you, you are correct. There's, this sort of opens the ability to create entirely new meat products because, you know, the meat that we eat today is sort of more representative of the animals that we were able to domesticate you know, thousands of years ago, they're not necessarily the tastiest animals or, um, you know, the ones that people would enjoy eating if they were given uh, more choices. So there actually are some companies in the sector that are exploring more sort of production of exotic meats through this process um, or combining different aspects of, of a animal product uh, together. So for instance, 
why not have a burger with duck fat in it yeah. if we can use duck fat as an ingredient in whatever we'd like? Um, so really the whole spectrum of animal products can be created using cells. And this extends not just to meat, but also to milk products. So you can actually grow milk uh, using mammary cells from different mammals. There are companies working on that for both human and animal milk products. Um, and then you can create other sort of agricultural products. Um, you know, people are applying this to grow cocoa cells to create, um, you know, chocolate products or uh, keratin to, grow, to replace rhino horn on the market. All of these sort of ideas, like if, if it comes from an animal, you can apply this technology um, in this way to, to replace it. I might be able to get behind chocolate meat. I'm oh, a yeah, big chocolate I know. fan. I don't know. That, that, <laughs> that, I'm still trying to process. Uh, I was going to uh, say it gives a whole other meaning to the turducken uh, idea. Just, right? just because there's a new movie out in the Jurassic Park franchise yes, here, yes. Is, is it is it feasible that you could resurrect like um, a woolly mammoth burger or, or dare I say a T-Rex burger? Or is that just in the realm of science fiction. That's where you need the biopsy, right? I, I was listening. The biopsy, yeah, well, that's why you I'm knew, asking, right, exactly. But, you know, it's, uh, it's the uh, wax that had kept, kept the mosquito that had built, you know, a uh, bit yeah. the... Uh, There's, there was actually an April Fool's article of uh, a company that um, came out that allegedly raised $100 million to make mammoth meat. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it was... It was an April Fool's joke, and unfortunately, there's no bank of, of sort of viable mammoth cells. But if if there were, um, one could potentially do that. Um, uh, Elliot, I know that um, you've you've kind of listened to one of our uh, episodes before, and you know that at some point in the conversation, we turn to the question of uh, good disruption, bad disruption, or no disruption. Uh, we've heard a lot about the good. We've heard some concerns, but like if you were to say. Uh, what might make people feel like this is a bad disruption? Uh, what would be the main things on their list? Yeah, I guess some of the things that I read about uh, and, uh, you know, online or hear about is um, that essentially, you know, this opens the door to, you know, patent food in ways that would just sort of entrench more power, uh, corporate power in the food system, with which is generally, you know, not what people want from from their food you know when they think about you know the ideal food environment they want it to be you know something that they know where it came came from you know maybe it's local they know who grew it you know that's sort of the the ideal version of the world so entrenchment of corporate power is certainly i think a, a concern that some people have about these technological approaches to food production. Yeah, it goes against um, the farm-to-table idea, right? Like going against that whole... Well, yeah, yeah that, that's actually a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about, which is um, one of the things that makes agriculture so hard to to kind of manage when it comes to, let's say, decarbonization is it is so uh, diffuse. You know, millions of farmers out there, uh, uh, various scales and the like. If there is significant economies to scale in cultivated meat production, yeah, the logical outcome would be we'd have a handful probably of very large meat-producing companies in the world. Yeah. And how does that change change our, our thinking about the industry? Elliot, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, I mean, yeah, I, I will just say that, you know, this hopefully will be developed, you know, in, in tandem with, with careful policies to, you know, ensure equitable, you know, equitability, uh, that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of potential for that reality that we just described to not exist. Um, but, you know, we do have to be mindful of, of that possibility. And really, we have the opportunity 
to build this new sort of meat production system. Um, so, you know, as long as hopefully we're conscious of that throughout this process, that will likely take decades, uh, you know, to fully um, materialize, uh, you know, we could create a much better world. I'm curious, we haven't talked about that timing issue here. You know, there's obviously a lot of things going on, a lot of investment in products even coming coming out now. But when do you think, um, if this goes to fruition, we'll be sitting at our McDonald's eating a, a cultivated meat product? I mean, are we, are we a few years away? Are we a decade away? Um, and I'm also curious, like, does this include things like filet mignon? Can I get a, get a, a, a higher end cut of meat through the cultivated meat process? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take your, your second question first. And I think, you know, obviously the, the end goal is to create the whole spectrum of meat products. Um, but as, as you might imagine, creating a fully marbled steak uh, is a harder task than creating a, a chicken nugget. Mm -hmm. So I think generally the unstructured types of products are the things that we'd see on to market first. And, and that is the case in Singapore, where the product is a, a chicken nugget, which is composed of, by the way, 70% animal cells and 30% plant ingredients. So it is a hybrid product, the one that's currently for sale. Um, in terms of you know expectations for consumers, I think you know the the facilities that are being built before you described as large scale, but I'd actually say that you know they're really small scale when you think about it on the food system. So their output is somewhere in the you know hundreds of thousands of pounds per year, um, and we consume over as a you know, global society, over 350 million metric tons of meat products uh, per year, not even counting seafood. So you know, we have a long ways to go to scale up to the you know, food production sorts of levels. Um, but what consumers can expect in the short term is that these facilities, these smaller facilities that are opening now will really coincide with small scale commercial releases that can you know, serve a couple of restaurants um, maybe, you know, by the end of this decade, start to enter into higher end retail grocery stores and, and things like that. Um, but there is, you know, challenges into scaling from a scientific perspective that I think will need to um, be solved before you're really buying a fully cultivated meat uh, burger at your McDonald's, for instance. So uh, let's get back to our big question to wrap up here. Yeah. Uh, Elliot. Good disruption, bad disruption, no disruption. Well, you know, I'm a little biased, but I think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think certainly, you know, this has enormous potential for, for good disruption. And I'll just mention, you know, outside of the things that we talked about today in terms of, you know, sort of environmental impact, I do want to, to note that, you know, there are other sort of existential threats that this sort of intersects with. So, for instance, you know, conventional meat production is the number one source of zoonotic disease threats. So, you know, pandemic risk um, is, is highly elevated if we keep animals in confined conditions as we do today. Um, and this would essentially eliminate, you know, that possibility if, if alternative proteins were become no longer alternative. Um, additionally, global antibiotic use about three quarters of antibiotics are fed to livestock um, and other animals in confined conditions, um, not humans. And that is a major driver of antibiotic resistance threats. Um, and actually, contrary to sometimes what people believe, 
you don't actually need to use any antibiotics in the production of cultivated beet or any other alternative protein. So I think this sort of technology has potential to mitigate a lot of, you know, long-standing global threats um, to, you know, human health, the environment, et cetera. So if it does pan out, um, I think it will be an extremely good disruption um, for humanity. Well, you've convinced me. I'm, I'm coming down, Yael, on good disruption here. I Probably think you not. walked in here with good disruption did, on your I mind. Did. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm often good disruption, but I think this this has has some real real potential. But you came in skeptical here. You came I in did. like you were not going to ever eat a cultivated meat product. So where do you where do you stand? Yeah. So my so listening to both of you, my sense is that um, I come down on it as a good disruption, but not maybe for the same reasons. Like for me, the good disruption. Uh, assessment comes from the idea that uh, the technology, the investment, the thought process, and all of these efforts, I think, opens the doors to a lot of s- solutions to other problems that we might have around us. A little bit, as Elliot suggested, um, we're trying to solve a multifaceted problem here related to how we live our lives right now. And clearly, we've been pushing the extremity of our systems you know, to a place where they're out of balance and we need to gain control. And by Having new technologies and new opportunities, I think we'll find our way. Whether I'm going to sit down and eat a cultivated beef burger, I don't know. Um, But I think that there's enough substitutes and enough creativity being put into it that I think eventually we'll have a much larger variety to enable us as individuals to find better paths forward. Yeah, I had one last, you know, factoid to this discussion, which is by most projections, we're going to grow from about 7 billion people to about 10 billion people over the next 30 years. Um, How are we going to feed that many people in the world, um, especially when there's constraints on the amount of land use we can use for agriculture. And then, of course, you're adding you know, climate change and other pressures on uh, the environment. Um, we, need, we need a fourth industrial or fourth agricultural revolution, excuse me, as, as Elliot suggested. And, and perhaps, perhaps this is it. We need to change our habits, too. Uh, and we need to be more aware of the, of the shortcomings of our decisions, um, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Elliot, for joining us today. Uh, really appreciated your expertise. As always, thank you to Gary, our producer, and to Becky, our cultivated meat enthusiast, <laughs> and also uh, researcher extraordinaire. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Good Disruption. <laughs> Good Disruption is a podcast from the University of Virginia Darden School of Business.